Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and today is 19 July, 2023. Man, are we in the middle of the summer. This is lecture number 94 in immunoepigenetics. So we're getting really close to that 100 mark, which would result in 50 hours as 5-0 of this one subject. And I'm really going to stop at 100. But this is a really interesting story today. So let's uh, develop it. We're talking about a paper published in Immunology and Cell Biology approximately one year ago. Let's go through their introductory discussions and then get into the paper. This is a um, specific, individual, peer-reviewed research paper on human neonatal immunity. That's why I chose it. So they tell you that infections are the leading cause of morbidity and mortality <clears throat> during the very early neonatal period. And the statistics are really horrible. Some 1 million neonates die of an infection each year uh, on a worldwide basis. This uh, neonatal infection has been attributed to what they call immaturity of the immune response. But I can tell you that term is really ill-defined. Um, we know that exposure to antigen does populate a subsequent immune cell library, uh, mostly lymphocytic, that obtains memory cells from past APC presentation encounters. This is something we know from um, years of study of the differences between neonate and, say, one- or two-year-old children. Now, I have to put a caveat here because, as we observed, innate immune cells also harbor a biochemical memory, and that's the source of events, including chemotaxis and diaphoresis, because of myeloidogenesis and maternal cohabitation prior to parturition. Plus, subsequent to that, there are multiple exposures to self and non-self molecular patterns, especially uh, right before parturition because of general circulation. Now, postpartum, the neonate is no longer in a semi-sterile environment, so the exposure to former uh, foreign epitopes is going to occur at a very high rate. So, the neonatal immune responses as globally immature is not entirely accurate because a neonatal immune cell system will be mounting responses under certain contexts that would mimic the more mature immune response. Under most circumstances, neonatal innate and adaptive immune cells do demonstrate a decreased microbial killing and proliferation associated with uh, antigen presentation. They also tend to have, that is, neonate adaptive immune cells and also uh, innate immune cells tend to also produce less pro-inflammatory cytokines at the level of transcription 
translation, secretion, all levels. So that may contribute to their heightened risk for infection, but it also protects from hyperinflammatory or autoimmune responses. Now, neonatal CD4 positive T cells like Th1 are significantly important to mount effective responses to um, enforced immunizations that are given to neonates uh, shortly after parturition, up to about two years. Now, those enforced immunizations are theoretically providing a long-term protection against some communicable diseases. Now, those same immunizations may also thwart normal integrated exposure to multiple antigen presentations happening simultaneously. And if that occurs, you can get inappropriate targeting and selective biasing of the immune response, which should be a naive immune system toward a very small contingent of potential pathogen-associated molecular patterns. Now, unlike adult CD4-positive T cells, the neonatal CD4s are biased towards a Th2 response. Now, that, that's going to involve an leukin 4 5, and 13 cytokine expression. Rather than a Th1 response, which is interleukin-2 and interferon gamma. Indeed, we do notice that naive neonatal CD4-positive T-cells demonstrated an altered T-cell receptor signaling response downstream. And that includes a decrease in IL-2 and interferon gamma. And that seems to be associated with a cell surface activation marker expression of CD69, a new center of differentiation player that we haven't talked about much in the last four or five lectures. Now, because of this, there are currently very few vaccines that can be administered actually within the first two months post-parturition because they will provide a functional, they don't provide, I should say, a functional antibody response, which immunologists believe, or vaccinologists argue, would lead to long-term disease protection. So this paper published last year is set up to look at naive neonatal CD4-positive T-cells and determine why they tend to have a less robust Th1 differentiation. Because that's why this paper came out. So this is a human study. So let's make sure we look at the reasoning involved. So recta ratio, which is right reason, is, a, is the intellectual act of understanding by the use of conceptual framing, um, which would allow the human agent to know all of or most of the essential discernible properties of a given event. And then that can determine the specific 
kind of knowledge necessary in order to understand. That's why it's called right reasoning. Um, a given future event. See how evidence plays a role there. So reason requires that each truth has to coexist with truth already established. Now, if this relational category isn't found, then you have to determine what I call the color of that failure. And what I mean by that is, is it contrarian or contradictory? If it's contrary, okay, comparing two different truths, then it has to be established, and you have to establish via observation or as a scientist, experimentation, and then ultimately a dialectic, that is the uh, faculties of reason have to come into play. And you have to determine that both truths are together compatible or incompatible, because those could still be contrarian, see? Now, if they're contradictions, you have to use those same methods, and ultimately you have to say the truth is retained while the falsehood is discarded. So this becomes a clear yes-no response if it's contradictory. Now, from that, what I would call an idealization of truth-seeking, and that's how my view is on these patterns. This is what I recognize in scientific papers. You can maybe see that truth is like a tree in the forest. For it to be a member of that forest's arboreal species, it has to germinate from perhaps a seed, a botanical seed. Or it could arise from rhizomaceous outgrowth or even from adventitious shoot primordia. Furthermore, the young tree or the newly discovered truth, remember that's my metaphor, has to develop a sturdy vascular system, lignification as well, and a photosynthetic canopy so that it can be autonomous within the forest like all the other trees or truths in this forest of truths. Now, it doesn't rely on the other truths so much as it cohabitates, or you could use the term coheres with them in the forest, right? Because they are, one, the tree once established is independent and autonomous, like truths are. So notice that in this view, this is my view. The truths don't arise ex nihilo, but rather from some germline, just like the trees in the forest. Now, that is arche. Okay, with the germline there, we could now evoke the Greek term arche. Arche means first principle. First principle, truth with a capital T. So, all truths, small t, participate in the arche via aletheia. Now, what is aletheia? That's the uncovering event. Uncovering what? Uncovering truths. So, truth is found there in the forest, growing independently 
and flourishing while ready to give via reproduction fruit to new ideas that may eventually be formulated into abstracted concepts in the faculty of the understanding. So, give you that idea and my viewpoint on truth versus truths um, as a prolegomena as we enter this paper. Okay, neonatal and adult T cells contain the same essential genetic material, but we know that there's differential gene expression because there is a whole vast array of alterable functional adaptational capability. Now, why is that? Because all the canonical transcriptional control we know about gene expression, but also as you're learning from my lectures, the epigenetic tailoring and both the transcriptional control and the epigenetic tailoring are indeed not apodictic phenomena. Rather, they are proposed and purposed with both a plastic and elastic fluidity. And we're talking about gene expression here. Now, epigenetics involves, of course, changes to DNA structure. And because of that, or vis-a-vis, -vis, gene expression, and that means there's no influence on the underlying genetic code, sensus stricto. But it's true event ontology, that is the true event ontology of epigenetics, right? The antecedent in this sentence that I'm predicating, it's far more complex than simple covalent modification of pre-existent nucleic acid architecture. Oh yes, indeed. Besides canonical CPG DNA methylation or histone lysine acetylation, what have we encountered? Multiple integrative events in the last 94 lectures that come ready to intervene, but may not execute ultimately the modification the same way at each new time interval. So it's a temporal signature. That's why they're all events, right? And also remember that RNA is involved, not just DNA. And of course, lipids play a major role in epigenetic phenomena, as you've been learning. Now, in addition to this, I'm saying we've encountered temporal sequencing and a much wider repertoire of organic compounds that directly play a role in that epigenetic retailering, more than simply acetate or methyl group. Acetate from acetyl-CoA, methyl groups primarily from acetonacylmethionine, from methionine metabolism and folic acid metabolism, the latter, of course. And acetyl-CoA from, you know, central casting of intermediary metabolism. So, indeed, what am I saying? Some epigenetic phenomena are not covalent chemistry at all. <laughs> we talked a lot about hydrophobic and amphipathic free energy fields we talked about enthalpy and entropy remember they're just as common phenomena controlling epigenetics sure they are 
and, and then superimpose on that just basic thermodynamics right? and bioenergetics. So DNA methylation and gene promoters, enhancers, splice junctions, homologous recombinatorial loop rearrangements, and of course, regulatory elements sometimes will silence and sometimes activate gene transcription. While histone, lysine, typically lysine, but also serine and tyrosine modifications can activate or silence gene transcription. So there you go with the on and off possibilities. And that occurs by influencing, once again, chromatin superstructure and the stability of altering how DNA interacts with itself. Remember the DNA folding back on itself because of the histone covalent modifications that occurred. Remember that? Moving the histones around because of that? Yes. But also the interaction with the transcription factors and transcription factor complex arrangements, right? In the nucleus. Now, compared with adult CD4 positive T cells, been demonstrated that the neonatal CD4 positive T cells demonstrate hypermethylation at an interferon gamma and FOXP3 promoter regions. And you get hypomethylation, typically, at interleukin-4 promoters. Now, if you add those together, that kind of explains the TH2, T effector cell H2 bias that you see in neonate and very early developmental young baby immune responses at the thymocyte level, right? at the T, at the, uh, excuse me, at the T lymphocyte level. Now, in addition to three methyl groups to lysine, four of histone three, remember that's H3K4ME3, that leads typically to activation of gene transcription when it occurs. But developmentally, you see a related increase in transcriptionally activating histone modification at that H3K4ME3 type of locus domain that occur at immunologically significant naive T lymphocyte gene loci. And I say but because even though you get H3K4, ME3, it doesn't always mean you're getting more transcriptional activation. All that means is that often what you see is an increased, robust inflammatory response when you look at that particular epigenetic change, when you progress from preterm neonates to adults, because this has been measured. Okay, all right. Now, similar findings have been reported in CD8 positive T cells, where obviously you're looking now at different transcriptional domains, but, but when you look at CD8 positive T cells, where the adult cells demonstrate a global increase in H3K4ME3 and an improved cytotoxicity capability as compared to neonatal cells, okay? So this goes back into the phenotype. Not as hyper-inflammatory, not as hyper-killing in the response of a neonate as compared to an adult. 
So there's a spatiotemporal role of that H3K4ME3 and chromatin accessibility. And we can say that's in an age-related, at least at this level, CD4-positive T-cell phenotype. So that's what they want to interrogate in that one only. Okay. Now, they hypothesize that differences in neonatal naive CD4-positive T-cell receptor signaling, which we just spent a lot of time on here in authentic biochemistry, and activation downstream and coincidentally during antigen presentation could be related to differences, could be, could be to the H3K4ME3 patterning. And that may be linked then, remember their argument, to chromatin accessibility, accessibility for what transcription? You know, RNA polymerase, the whole gamut of transcription factors. Now, they want to test the hypothesis. And what they did is they employed a parallel DNA sequencing, which basically just is chromatin immunoprecipitation. It's a chip sequencing. And they looked at the histone modification, specifically H3K4ME3. And then they used a transposase accessible chromatin followed by high-throughput sequencing, so that's ATAC sequencing, to identify global differences in that H3K4ME3 geographical landscape. And they looked at chromatin accessibility, obviously, doing that between neonatal and adult naive CD4-positive T-cells, doing what? Doing the ATAC sequencing, right? So they integrated all those results, ultimately then with RNA sequence data sets and functional assays to demonstrate that neonatal T-cell receptor signaling deficits did appear to be somewhat associated with epigenetic modifications at the level of unique chromatin loci. So that's what they're saying they're going to find. So let's see if we agree with them. Okay. Let me check my time here because I do not want to go over last time for some bizarre reason. I think I did. So first thing they found was that neonatal CD4 positive T cells did demonstrate a TCR dependent defect in their activation. Okay. So how they figure this out? After engagement with an antigen-presenting cell and initiation of the TCR signaling, of course, we get a downstream signaling cascade, and that results in activation, right? And so that will result in the system they're looking at here, narrowly defined, and an upregulation of T-cell surface markers of activation. And here they're keying in on CD69. And then they're going to look downstream and look at the expression of multiple cytokines. So remember that two that they're really playing an important role here, RIL2 interferon gamma. So they stimulate naive adult and neonatal naive CD4 positive T cells. And how they stimulate them? Well, you've, you've heard this story before with an anti-CD3 and an anti-CD28. Okay, now that's going to be stimulating the T cell receptor. They also use as a control four-ball meristate acetate, that's PMA, and in associated with ionomyosin. 
Okay, so they engage T cell activation that way in a TCR dependent that's doing the CD3 and CD28 anti uh, induction versus a TCR independent manner, and that's the 4-bulmeristate acetate PMA with ionomycin. See, so they were. They wanted to look at what happens when they uh, induce T-cell receptor, and they wanted to look what happens when they avoid the T-cell receptor, but nevertheless activated the T-cell, okay? And what they measured was cell surface markers, the T CD69, and I already told you the cytokine expression, all post-stimulation. Now, adult and neonatal naive CD4-positive T-cells showed, demonstrated, that is, significant upregulation of CD69, 48 hours, 48 hours, that's right. Now, these are cells from human patients, right? After the CD3, I mean the anti-CD3, of course, the anti-CD28 stimulation, and a significant upregulation of cell surface CD69, five hours, after the PMA ionomyosin stimulation compared to all the unstimulated cells. So it took 48 hours when they stimulated the T cell receptor, but it only took five hours when they used a non T cell receptor stimulation, UC. So they claim that adult naive CD4 positive T cells had increased cell surface CD69 compared with the neonatal cells following the TCR stimulation through the anti-CD3, anti-CD28, but they had a decreased cell surface CD69 after the non-T cell receptor stimulation. Okay. Oh. Neonatal naive CD4 positive T cells had increased IL-2 and TNF-alpha expression following that PMA ionomyosin stimulation, which circumvents the T-cell receptor. But, okay, so that increases in those, but they had a decrease in the same two cytokines, IL-2 and TNF-alpha, the level of expression, when they did stimulate with CD3, uh, with anti-CD3 and anti-CD28. That's compared to the adult cells. So they're claiming, therefore, there is some kind of defect, as I just stated a few minutes ago, in the T cell receptor dependent activation in the neonate cells. Let me check my time again. Yeah, okay. Meanwhile, let me tell you this adult naive CD4 positive T cells expressed higher interferon gamma and interleukin 17A following both the anti CD3, anti CD28, or, or the PMA ionomyosin simulation. That's in comparison to the neonatal cells. So that suggests to them a deficit in neonatal cell independent and dependent T-cell activation. Okay, So all the processing downstream also seems not to be regimented in the neonate cells. Downstream from what? The T-cell receptor. Okay. So yeah, I'm going to stop here because I'm at the point now where I want to start differentiating in greater detail because we're running through the results of the experiments. So I want to go through this slowly 
so you get how these experiments are done first of all what the what the data looks like and then what evidence can be generated from the data so i'm going to do that uh, i'm going to do that next lecture this is dr dan guerra from authentic biochemistry podcast and wishing you a very pleasant middle of the week wednesday evening on the 19th of july 2023 bye for now